Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, join us Monday nights, ISU's campus. We'd love to see you there. You're silhouetted very nice. Can't see a single face. If somebody's got some lights, that might help me just a little bit. But I'm glad to be with you tonight. We're going to do something tonight that I think is, is, was transformative in my own life. And, and I, try, I want to be helpful as, as, as maybe you are, are processing yours. By the way, I'm awful proud of you. Uh, you guys didn't get any sleep last night. You didn't get any sleep last week. Who are we kidding, you know? And you show up here and you hear an old guy uh, come and lecture. Uh, I, I, I really deeply appreciate it. Two or three years, come by and see me in the nursing home. I would love to visit with you there. So, anyhow. Himself. God himself. The God of peace. May he sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be found sound and blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. And the one who promised, he's faithful. He will do it. Why are your emotions like they are? You realize, don't you, that your emotions are a gift given to you by God? Your emotions are a gift. They're part of the very nature of God. God has the same emotions. You're going to recognize that God has a righteous anger, and he gave you the ability to have anger. You have a God who has kindness, and so you have the ability to have compassion. Your emotions actually are God-given to you. Your very sense of caution, your very sense of insecurity at times make you teachable so that you are humble and a learner. I mean, your emotions are a gift to you. But until you learn how to manage those emotions, those little suckers, they'll do crazy things in your life. They're, they're, they're a bunch of like a herd of cats for a while, and, and they don't do well. And so part of what you're in the process of doing is trying to figure out what do I do with these emotions and how do I let Christ sanctify every single part of my life? For some of you in this room, you're so frustrated at your insecurity. You hate it. You walk into a room and you almost have trouble greeting people because you're so over-consumed with, with, I wonder how they see me. For some of you, you get your feelings hurt whenever somebody else excels because all you can do is compare it to yourself and go, how come I didn't, why didn't I get the recognition? Some of you, quite frankly, you can get mad at the drop of a hat. And you find yourself angry. You just wake up some mornings and you're just ticked. And you're not sure why I'm angry. You have your own emotions to work through. So we could come in that door. Let me come in another door. Same thing. How come, how come there's such a gap between individuals who seem to have spiritual maturity but they don't seem to have matching emotional maturity. I'm not talking about hypocrites. Hypocrites are not in this discussion. We're, they're, they're not in this room at all tonight. I'm talking about, man, you love how he leads worship, and you love how he, he says things, and, 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 and he has seemed to have such spiritual maturity. But you have to walk on eggs around him if you're in the team where he talks bad about you behind your back or, or this or that or this or that. Or, and he's not a hypocrite. Don't misunderstand me. But there's such a gap. By the way, you cannot be spiritually mature and emotionally immature. That's not possible. There are some of 
preachers. Man, you'd go 12 states to go hear the guy speak and to buy his book and to listen to it and, and read it. And you go, this is incredible stuff. But I wouldn't want to be on, on his church staff. There's an elder in your church. He's a great elder, loves Jesus, loves the church. But, but, but Tom gets mad at elders meetings and, and you have to deal with Tom's anger all the time. Some of your dads and moms love, by the way, there's great parents. I'm not trying to hammer on every parent when I do these things. But some of your parents loved Jesus and taught you to turn your face to Jesus, and they loved you as a family, but but your dad had such a gaping hole, and emotionally he just never really grew up well. Why the disconnect between the appearance of spiritual maturity but emotional immaturity? What I want to do with you tonight is, I don't even know what to call it. You tell me what to call it when we get done, because I don't know myself. I'm giving you a framework to think about your emotions and to understand your emotions. Maybe I'm giving you uh, a parable, a parable that you sort of comprehend. But, but what I want to give you is a way to look and think about your own emotions. This board's a little narrow, so you have to use your imagination on part of what I'm going to do here. But let's go like this. Part of how God designed you is you have a box of emotions you were born with. Those were blessings given to you. That box of emotions, about 30 emotions in there. We're pretty much cut out of the same humanity cloth. You may have six ounces of one more emotion than somebody else or six ounces less, but you're not radically different from somebody beside you. We, we can exchange blood and corneas and all kinds of things and tr- kidney transplants. We're pretty much the same, and our emotions are pretty much the same. You have a box of about 30 emotions. Those 30 emotions we can debate in some kind of a, of, of, of a class psychology class we can debate it are there four key emotions or six or eight or we can but it doesn't much matter i've been to the zoo where i know there's a section called mammals and there's just tons of them and 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 that's kind of how this is your box of emotions has joy in it it has sadness in it it has anger in it it has disappointment in it it has shame in it it has uh, delight in it it has apathy did you know apathy is actually an emotion it, it, it is it's a numbing emotion it's like morphine it it, it, it numbs everything around it. You have about 30 emotions. Now, here's the problem. The problem is those emotions don't come separated. They come in a black box, in a dark box, scrambled together like spaghetti, and they're just mixed together, and you don't know what those emotions are, and they're so entangled. And the secret to life is not really complex. The secret to life is bit by bit, to unpack your box by taking it to the Lord and the Lord's people. And as you take it to the Lord and the Lord's people, they help you unpack the box. And as you experience an emotion and you begin to take that emotion out, I don't know what to do with my shame. But when I take it to the Lord and the Lord's people, something crazy happens. This doesn't sound very theological, by the way, so cut me a little slack here on this. Your emotions are like vampires. Try that one in scripture. Your emotions have all their power in the dark. They have great power in the dark. They're little motors that are running and they're constantly 
You want to know why your immediate reaction is what it is? I guarantee you there's a little motor, and that motor is so powerful. But you take something like shame to the Lord and the Lord's people, and you let the Lord speak truth into that shame, and you let God's people speak into that shame. When you put that back, it begins to clear out part of your box, and shame hangs up, and it's tame as a lamb, and it's actually not destructive to you. These little motors are constantly at work. If you can't figure out why you get your feelings hurt as easily as you do or as mad as you do or why you shut down like you do or why you avoid like you do, I promise you it's the motors that are running in this box that you have not yet figured out how to take to the Lord and the Lord's people. A lot of years ago, I took um, probably 30 um, couples, uh, individuals, um, and took them canoeing in southern Missouri on one of our, our, our better rivers. And we're canoeing down the river, and most of us were, were doing fine, but I had one family, one couple, that just kept hitting the right bank. I mean, they just, no matter what they did, they hit the right bank. And I'm watching, and they're paddling right, but they hit the right bank. And, and it's holding all the rest of us up, because we have to keep waiting for them to get back off the bank, get back out in the river, and come join us. And, and I, I'm getting a little frustrated at having to wait. And so I, I, I wonder, is their gunwale bent in their canoe? And so I, I looked at their canoe, and no, it's, it seems to be fine, and... They hit the right bank, and I finally going, okay, we're going to switch canoes. You take my canoe, and I'm going to take your canoe. And as we're unpacking it, I discovered the, the issue. They had hung on the back right-hand corner of their canoe, they had hung 14, 16 cans of Dr. Pepper that they wanted to keep cold in the river. It's called a rudder. The emotions you have not figured out how to take the Lord to be healed and the Lord's people are a rudder that are driving your life. And that rudder is causing you to do what you do over and over and over again. Those emotions that are not taken to the Lord and the Lord's people are eating you alive. So it's, then we should just easily take them to the Lord and the Lord's people. No, here's the problem. Here's a problem. You're, being, you're born and raised in an activity-centered culture, not a relationship-based culture. The currency of our culture is activity. We are not relationship-based. And so what happens, you can grow up in a family, in a community, and with friends, but we don't help each other unpack the box very well. We do activities together, shared activities. You, can, you form from the outside in. You can, you can pay taxes and parallel park and, and run a small business on the outside, you look very, very put together, but on the inside, you've got a dark box that has never been fully unpacked, and that box is destroying your life. So how do I learn to take it to the Lord and the Lord's people? Well, we're going to pick up on that. But let me tell you another little fact. Most of you, and again, I'm speaking in strong statements that may not be true about you individually. Most of you actually grew up in a home where there's only five to seven permissible emotions. Most families, nobody has a family meeting and decides here's the five to seven emotions we allow in our family. That didn't happen. But most families have a culture and a tradition and something. You got to the party of your family late. You showed up late and something was already playing out. You may be a family, for example, that anger is permissible, especially among men. 
Now, nobody may like it, but it's permissible. You can be mad and knock holes in the sheetrock and, and, and permissible. But other, per, other emotions are not permissible. For example, being sad in your family, you'll get just absolutely eaten alive. Oh, yeah, like you wimp. What kind of a, stop crying over spilt milk. What kind of a sissy are you? Come on, buckle up. Anger's permissible, but sadness is not. Maybe you grew up in a family that, that joy's not permissible. You go, what? Oh, no, we're a family that basically pops each other's balloon. It's a, it's a, it's a family where sarcasm runs high. And if you actually have joy, somebody's going to go, oh, yeah, like you're going to be queen of the universe. Oh, yeah, like that's going to happen. And joy gets popped constantly. Maybe you grew up in a family, and we can run this as far as we want to. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that one. But my guess is that there's five to seven permissible emotions one more illustration, I guess. I'll stay with that. There's a, let's, say, let's say, for example, um, she's cheery Mary. She's just a happy-go-lucky little girl. But she went to, her, to the bathroom that morning and she cried because today's a sad day. And cheery Mary comes to the kitchen table and cheery Mary's not cheery Mary. And the family just begins to do its family culture. And it's not like people are trying to be mean but they begin to go, who's this little girl? We don't know this little girl. This little girl, did you, what, did, did you get up on the wrong side of the bed, hun? We, we don't know. And she begins to realize they like me better when I'm cheery Mary. And so she may get up in the morning and go to the bathroom and cry. But the only way she knows to cope and compensate is I, I, I put cheery on because that's how I'm accepted. That's how I'm kind of normal. And, and so cheery Mary comes and pretends like she's cheery Mary because that's the permissible emotion for her. Most families have five to seven. Now, they're not skilled at those emotions, but the five to seven are, that's what made some of you, when you went to your friend's house, went, whoa, this is a different kind of house because there's a uniqueness to the culture of that house. If we played with it, most of you could sit down and probably come up with the five to seven permissible emotions that are kind of allowed within your house. Some of you, Notice I'm coming back to the same point. Some of you were not allowed to be angry. We don't do anger in our family. If you were angry, wow, you got... So what we do is we do passive-aggressive in our family. What we do in our family is we come in the back door on anger. What we do is we pretend like things didn't happen. And if you actually get angry, you broke and, and you have one of the taboos that, that we, we don't do. So you stuff. It doesn't come out of the box. So what do we do with the emotions that are not unpacked? What do we do? We do two things. Number one, and I'm not going to write this out. You couldn't read it if I did write it. In my writing, you couldn't read anyhow. We do two things. Number one, here's the first one we do. We transfer the emotions we don't understand to the permissible ones. We transfer the emotions we don't understand to the permissible ones. They become the carriers. My dad died um, a little over a year and a half ago. My dad was an incredible man. I want to speak well of my dad. But my dad was an angry man when I was being raised when I was a kid. My dad, I, I can tell you the leopard changes his spots. I can tell you transformation is real. 
but I was raised by an angry father. I'd been spanked with bailing wire, bridles from horses. I wasn't abused and calling in a 1-800 number, but I can guarantee you I walked on eggs as a little kid, and my job was to keep my dad from being any more angry than he really was. Remember the game of curling in, in the Olympics where they put the, 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 you know, the block of ice and they slide it down, and the guy with the broom in front of it? From the time I was a little kid, I'm the oldest, and my job was to watch what can make dad mad, and I got to keep... Br- broom. I, I, just, I just brushed in front of it constantly. My dad was angry a lot. And you go, wow, bummer, your dad had an anger problem. No, my dad really didn't have an anger problem. Well, Randy, you just said he had an anger problem. No. No, you could have sent dad to anger management school and that actually would have been wrong. I gave you hints of it earlier, but my dad, my dad grew up in a rough family. His dad His dad had a wife die in childbirth at the third child. And his dad just took the three kids to grandparents, dropped them and left them for 10 years and just took off and lived out of a bottle. He came back into 10 years and picked up three pretty angry kids, as you may well guess, and took them back out to western Kansas. And he wrote his late wife's sister, who lived back here in Illinois, and said, I can't raise these kids by myself. Do you want to come raise your sister's kids? She said, what do you mean? He said, come live with me and raise the kids. She said, I'm not going to live with you. He said, okay, I'll marry you. She got on a train and went to western Kansas, got off the train. He took her to a justice of the peace, and they got married, and she went out and raised those three little kids, and then they had five kids of their own. My grandfather, who had lived out of a bottle during those 10 years he ran off, my grandfather was not skilled emotionally, and it was a family that angers permissible. So here's what's happening. My dad is trying to make a change, and my dad is dirt poor, and he's trying to raise a wife and a kid. Whenever my dad felt like he was failing, he transferred it to anger. Whenever my dad felt scared, he transferred it to anger. Whenever my dad felt like he'd embarrassed himself, he transferred it to anger. My dad didn't have an anger problem. Anger was his carrier. My dad didn't get well. Till my dad began to unpack the box that he was using anger as the carrier. Some of you in this room, you are exactly like my dad. Anger is what you think your problem is. It's actually not. Oh, don't misunderstand me. Your anger is not helpful in this, but, but no, that's not the issue. Some of you in this room, you are cheery Mary. And you figured out a long time ago that the way I'm liked and the way, I'm, the way I cope, I don't know what to do with sadness. I don't know what to do with disappointment. I don't know what to do with failure. And so I just put on a happy face and I smile and I laugh and I make people laugh. And when I make people laugh, I feel better about it. And so laughing is, is part of what I do. And so cheery Mary who goes to the bathroom and cries in the morning, but when I go to the table, I'm, I'm pretty funny. And when I go to school, I, I act like nothing bothers me. The trouble is, it's all pretend. It's a carrier. Doesn't work. That's why Robin Williams, the comedian, would hang himself. That's why Bill Cosby, the comedian, would be an absolute disaster behind the scenes. It's a front. There's some of you in this room that you say, my, my personality is I'm, I'm just a sad person. No you're, no, you're not like you think. Sadness was permissible somehow, and you're, you grew up, and, and sadness was sort of your carrier. But the truth is, 
you lack some courage and you don't know what to do with it and you have some failure and you know what to do with it and you have some fear and you know what to do with it and sadness becomes your carrier for everything else. You're not really as melancholy as you come across. What you really are is somebody that hadn't unpacked the box and sadness is your carrier. We don't get well till we unpack the box. I'm going to make a strong statement here and I'm not trying to be Many of you don't even know who you are by personality because all you know is the extremes of who you are and you think that's who I am. I just am easily, get my, I'm a sensitive person. I just easily get my feelings hurt. I'm just a type A driven person. I just get, I, I'm just more competitive than other people. No. No, those are your compensating personality traits. If we were to take a balloon here and lay a balloon out, I want you to, can you picture the balloon? I want you to lay it out. Let me smash down this two-thirds of the balloon. What's going to happen to this end? It's going to rise. And you're going to say, well, see, that's who I am. These, these extreme emotions, that's who I am. And God would whisper back to you, no, child, that's not who you are. That's the compensating who you are. When you begin to let these find their natural spot, can I tell you what's going to happen to your sadness? Can I tell you what's going to happen to your anger? Can I tell you what's going to happen to your insecurity? Can I t- it's going to come back and find its place. The problem is not this end of the balloon. The problem is this end balloon. And this end of the balloon is dictating this. So many illustrations of this. I, there was a football coach at the Division II level. He was about as driven a guy as I've ever met in my whole life. Competitive, driven, precise. His garage, his children, his grown children could not go and get anything out of the garage because they wouldn't put it back on the right hook. He didn't drive his car into the garage in in any night till he first got out and wiped the tires off before he drove into the garage. His garage was don't touch it. He was angry if anybody messed his system up. I obviously can imagine some things that were hard in his family, and I'm working with him a little bit. And he goes, that's just who I am. I just, no, you're not. He grew up in a world that he couldn't, didn't feel like he could ever measure up to an older brother. He felt like his dad never fully respected him. He felt like he never really got, and he created an artificial world of his own where order is there, and I will create my artificial world. And that artificial world, I can control, and he controlled this artificial world. And it wasn't until we helped him come back and understand grace. It wasn't until we could come back and help him understand his insecurities. It wasn't until we could come back and help him handle failure. It wasn't until we began to process that, that this end of the balloon just began to come back down and find its natural place. Oh, he still cared about order, but he laughs and makes fun of himself, and his kids can go to the garage and get things, and, and it's no big deal. Because who he thought he was was not who he actually was. It was the compensating him. Many of you in this room, One of the greatest delights that you're going to have is to actually discover who you are because you're not who you think you are. You're not near as sad as you think you are. Your sadness is your carrier. Your anger is your carrier. Your insecurity is your carrier. Your guilt is your carrier. You don't know what to do, so you just stick on guilt every single time. We do two things. We transfer to the permissible emotions. 
is the second thing we do. The second thing we do is we transfer to something physical. By the way, let's make sure I don't miss this. You are designed to unpack the box with the Lord and the Lord's people. But the weakness of our culture and the weakness of our past, we don't do that well, so that's what we do instead. We transfer to something physical. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, the reason you do that is that's what you learned from the time you were a child. I want you to use your imagination. I want you to take a four-year-old that you know very, very well to Walmart or in your part of the country, Walmarts. And you take this child to Walmart, and this little boy's box begins to fire with longing and excitement and joy and delight because, and surprise begins to fire in his box because he's going to Walmart, and that would be toy and candy, right? So you turn to him in the parking lot, and you say, you know, Braden, we're going into Walmart, but no toys, no candy. We're getting dishwashing soap and motor oil. We're not getting no toys and candy. And this little boy's box begins to fire differently. Now it begins to fire with disappointment. And now it begins to fire with sadness. And it begins to fire with a- anger because you took his brother yesterday and he got something, or at least in his mind, he'd, and, 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 and you're not letting me get something. And this little boy's box begins to fire. And this, but this little boy doesn't know what's firing because his, he's got a tangled box of spaghetti just inside of him. He doesn't know what it is. All he knows is he gets, begins to get upset. He begins to feel stressed. So what's he going to do? What's he going to do with uh, being upset and disappointed and sad and angry and mad and all of those things? What's the chances he's going to say, Aunt Sally, I'm feeling sad and disappointment. And he didn't do that. He didn't know. So what he's going to do is transfer something physical. His lip will come out. And he's going to scuff his boots all the way across the parking lot. His head's pulled down. You go into Walmart, and about 90 times you tell him, no, put that back, because everything's at eye level, and no, put that back. And his box just keeps firing more and more and more, and the pressure in his box builds up. So what does he do to handle the pressure in the box? Well, you transfer something physical. And so because he's a four-year-old, there's a very good chance he throws a little hissy fit at the end of the, the aisle. He throws a little crying jag. He throws himself on the floor, and he weeps, and he mads, and, he's, and he bawls. Somebody who's not very astute will say, well, he's working you. Well, he may be working you, but that's not what's happening. It's dysfunctional, and it doesn't work long-term. It gets him... In fact, it causes him to have shame when you get back to the car. It causes you to give him a lecture when you get back to the car and to say, wow, why were you acting like such a baby? And, 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 and it didn't work, but in some crazy, dysfunctional way, it worked. It let the pressure off of his box. Oh, it's dysfunctional. Don't misunderstand me. But in some crazy way, he cried it out, and the little pressure went off his box. Now, he doesn't know what he solved, but he just he got through it. It'd be wonderful if only four-year-old boys did that. But that's not what happens. I'm about to walk into really, really sensitive territory. I don't want to blunder in. I don't want to stomp. She's 14 years old, and she lives two blocks from you, and she's a cutter. 
Her box is wired tight. She doesn't know. She, she, she doesn't feel pretty enough, skinny enough, talented enough, or well-liked enough. Or maybe everybody tells that she's pretty and skinny and talented and she's at the head table, but she feels like one mistake and I'll make it. Or maybe my friends don't befriend me well and she doesn't know what to do with the wired box. She doesn't know what to do with a sense of sadness and disappointment. She doesn't know what to do with betrayal. She doesn't know what to do with longing. She doesn't know what to do with loneliness. And the box builds up, and what she's designed to do is go to the Lord and the Lord's people, and we're designed to live in community that somebody helps this little girl unpack her box, but she doesn't know how to do that. And so she does what we all do. She transfers the physical. So she goes behind a bathroom door, and she takes a razor blade, and the little bit of sting and the little bit of blood. And you go, that is bizarre. How does that razor blade, but it doesn't matter because it's not connected logically. It's dysfunctional, causes her to have more shame afterwards, causes a greater cycle. But in some crazy, broken, dysfunctional way, the sting and the blood and the little bit of self-punishment, she feels better for about 30 seconds till shame begins to come in and it builds back up again. Well, her problems, bathroom doors and razor blades. We just need to get red. No. No, the problem is this little sweet, wonderful 14-year-old girl, nobody's helped her or she hasn't let herself unpack the box. I'm blundering into heavy, hard things here. So he weighs 600 pounds. And I say, why do you weigh 600 pounds? And he says, well, I just like pie better than other people. No, you don't like pie better than other people. Everybody likes pie. But somehow in your growing up years, you didn't know what to do with the emotions. You didn't know what to do when you felt sad. You didn't know what to do when you were celebrating. You didn't know what to do to connect. In some crazy way, comfort food and joy food became a part of it. And, and in some crazy, just you moved it to something physical. And so when you don't feel like you're succeeding or doing well, a piece of pie somehow. Well, my problem is just food and dieting. No, your problem actually isn't food. Your problem is you haven't unpacked the box. Nobody's helped you unpack the box. You don't know how to unpack the box. And so food becomes what you transfer it to. The next one is dangerous for me to even say, because one of these guys is going to kill me one of these days for this illustration. Go to any gym in America, and there's 20, 25 guys, not collectively, but individually, that have to work out two and a half hours a day. I just don't feel right about myself till I work out two and a half hours a day. Somehow two and a half hours a day, I just have to do. It's just, it's just, it's just part of my routine. It's who I am. And again, I'm not opposed to that if you're trying to get the D1 scholarship or the Olympics or something along that line. But he's working out two and a half hours a day and has to. I just don't feel quite right if I don't do it. I want you to take a look. Do I have the emotional giants of the neighborhood? I got the guy that can't get along with his ex-wife and his 13-year-old son he's pretty estranged from. He doesn't like his dead-end job. I don't know what to do, but somehow working out two and a half hours a day, I just feel better about myself. Somehow it lets me cope. So why is porn such a problem for people in this room? If I brought a guy, many of you girls, 
And I said, why is porn in your life? You go, well, I, I guess I'm just lustier than other guys. No, you're not lustier. Everybody, 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 everybody knows, has to battle that. No, what happened is you discover porn as a 12-year-old, 9-year-old, 13-year-old, 16-year-old, 7-year-old. And when you discovered porn, it was, whoa, this is a new world. Man, I'm not tied to mama's apron strings anymore. I, I'm a man. And, and maybe it was empowering to you in a false sense, but it was empowering to you when you first, but that's not why you stayed with porn. That's not why you still do porn. I guarantee it's not. You don't do porn on your victory days. You do porn on the days that I... I feel apathetic. You do porn on the days I feel like I'm kind of lost. I, I do porn on the days I don't know. The day that I bombed the test, the day the girl broke up with me, the, the day my buddies did something fun and didn't include me. Porn. Porn is not because of lust anymore. Oh, it uses lust, but that's not what it's about. Porn became your carrier. I need you to cut me a little bit of time here for this to make sense. I'm about to take a little detour. I'll come back. There's a phrase that baffled me from the Old Testament. It, it, I, I read it a lot. It's about the nation of Israel and the Baal and the Asherah. The Baal and the Asherah. 30, 35 times it talks about it in the Old Testament. The Baal and the Asherah were two very, very sensual gods that the Israelites put on a little hill behind their house, the Baal and the Asherah, and they built a little bitty back door that you only use in the night, and you go to the Baal and the Asherah. I, I'm not surprised the Baal and the Asherah is there. I expect Ahab and Jezebel, two wicked people, to have a Baal and Asherah. But I'm shocked when the prophets of God have to destroy their own Baal and Asherah. I'm shocked when the people of God who are worshiping have to go destroy their Baal and the Asherah. I'm surprised when there's kings that are actually pretty decent kings had to go destroy their Baal and their Asherah. Why? Because here's what they found. I don't know how to take some things to the Lord and the Lord's people. There are some things I go to, to, to the temple and the tabernacle and, and I sing praises to Jehovah and I know how to meet in the synagogue or whatever it may be and I, I worship with God's people. But there's some emotions I don't know what to do and I build a little dark trail out the back door and I have a secret that I use. And the secret I'm ashamed of and I don't like it, but some crazy dysfunctional way it seems to help me cope. And they built a little bale in the Asherah, and it became the way I coped with emotions that I didn't know what to do with. For what it's worth, you can't see this, the bale in the Asherah can be negative. You go, duh. For some of you in this room, it's weed. For some of you in this room, it's alcohol. For some of you in this room, it's porn. For some of you in the room, it's very destructive things. Some of you, you are the boy with the razor blade behind the closed door. It can be negative. The very act of trying to fix this, it actually does, does greater damage. Ronnie, Donnie, and Jerry were first cousins of mine. Aunt Belle, they're through. their dad 
was an alcoholic who spent most of his life in prison and jail. Ronnie and Jerry both became alcoholics themselves. Not because they loved the taste of alcohol, but because they were a couple of little boys raised from couch to couch to couch to couch, and they didn't know where they fit in, and it wasn't alcohol. It was their Bale and Asherod, some crazy way. Alcohol was a coping mechanism. It can be negative. The Bale and the Asherah can be neutral. Neutral. What do you mean by that? You can go work out two and a half hours a day and, 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 and no police officers are going to pull you over and go, hey, that's too much. It's not illegal to work out two and a half hours a day. It's neutral. There's a friend of mine, Tom, Tom Rogers. Tom Rogers was one of the most addictive personalities in our part of the country. Tom was a gambling addict, womanizer addict, drug addict, alcohol, and Tom was gifted and charismatic. He could sell ice to an Eskimo. He was likable. Everybody liked Tom, but Tom was a million miles away from Jesus, and Tom came to Jesus, and he came hard, and he came real. But coming hard and coming real, he didn't know what to do with the negative emotions or the negative Baal and Asherah, and so what Tom did is he became a runner. He immediately started ultra-marathons, running 55 and 60 and 90-mile races. Is there anything illegal wrong about that? No. It was his way of giving up all the drugs and the alcohol and the womanizing, and I want to follow Jesus, but he hadn't had time to unpack his box yet, and so he ran and became a great, consistent runner. Now stay with me. I'm going to put this in a different position here in a little bit. But I appreciated what Tom did. He was trying to stop doing the destructive stuff. It can be negative. It can be neutral. But here's the killer. It can be positive. There are individuals who don't feel quite right about their life, but somehow when I lead worship, I just feel better about myself. I feel better about life. I feel like I I, I just... It, it, it lets the pressure off my box. And so being a worship leader is, is really good. And see, I'm serving Jesus and I'm being a worship leader. Guys like me, there's any number of us that I love Jesus and somehow I, I'm a mess, but, but, I lo- but preaching, somehow my preaching becomes and I feel better about myself and see, I'm serving Jesus and, I, and I'm going to Jesus and, and Jesus answers back, no, you're not. Randy, you're using God against God. Your preaching will never be your healing. Your worship leading will never be your healing. You're going to stay emotionally unrepaired because you need to come to me and God's people for your healing, but you're going to your ministry for your healing because you think your ministry will heal you. Some of you in this room are excellent students, but you're not an excellent student out of your creativity. You're doing it out of your identity. It's your coping mechanism. Because what would it say to me if I, if I got a B plus? What would it say to me if I didn't get that? What would it say if I weren't the one? What if it would say about me? And you're not a good student out of your creativity. It's out of your desperate identity. I do exit interviews with all of my juniors and seniors. And I'll sit down, and I, I could pick a boy or girl on this. I'm going to use a girl. But, and I will say to her, you, man, you are an extraordinary student. I, 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 I've had very few students that are as, as good as you are. I should have given you bonus points on everything you ever did for me. But here's my question. Did it come out of your creativity? 
where you, it was a joy and a delight and you had a curiosity and you liked it and yes, it was work and you had to use self-discipline, but it was a grand adventure for you and your creativity drove you? Or were you always fearful that the paper wouldn't be good enough? Are you, were you always stressed you might not handle the test well? Were you always fearful? Was it a pressure to you? Did you jo- enjoy the journey or was it just a crushing pressure and she will just begin to bawl? And she will go, everything I do at school is such pressure. Sweetheart, what you've done is you've made your good grades. You have made them to be a, a bail and an Asherah. how you're trying to cope. At some point in time, most of you in this room are going to have to come to the realization that the bail and Asherah will never be your healer. The weed is never going to let you free. The porn is never going to let you free and fix your emotions. You can work out two and a half hours a day and become an ultra marathoner, but you're going to be paralyzed emotionally for where you are. This cannot heal you. Some of you in this room are going to lead worship and preach and be small group leaders and leaders in your, in your campus ministry and go, see, I'm serving Jesus. And Jesus is going, no, you're running from me. You're using me against me until you come to me. The reason the preacher is so arrogant or insecure at your church is he didn't know how to unpack his box with the Lord and the Lord's people. It's a battle in Asherah. At some point in time, you've got to go, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Those are idolatrous. And those will never heal me. Tom, Tom's still a runner. It's over here. Tom will tell you, I love to run. It's a delight to run. It's part of my life. But if I never run another step again, I'm fine. It's part of my creativity. It's part of what I enjoy to do with with other people. But if I never ran another step the rest of my life, I would be perfectly fine. Because my running cannot heal me. God is my healer. And Tom is so transformed. I'm confident in my early years, it wasn't intentional, but I'm confident my preaching was there. My preaching's here. Back when it was here, my wife has always been supportive and, and, and so encouraging, but my wife would have driven six states to come hear me preach back in the olden days because some crazy way she got more of my heart in hearing me preach than she did by living with me because I didn't know how to unpack my emotions as well as I should have. And somehow, but my preaching's here now. I enjoy preaching. It's a delight. It's an honor. It's a privilege. But I said to one of you groups this morning, either the women or the men, I can't remember which one, if I never preached again, if this is my last time to ever speak to anybody, I'll be fine. Because Christ loved me. I said to you earlier today, he loved me in the nursery when I didn't know my name and he will love me in a few weeks in the nursing home when I can't remember my name. And my preaching has nothing to do with it. My preaching comes out of an act of worship, but it's not where my healing is. For some of you, your Balaam and Asherah is your stupid relationships with a boy or a girl. It will never heal you. For some of you, It's your career. Your career will make a terrible bail on Asherah. For some of you, it's what people think of you and your social 
feedback, it will never heal you. We could fill this side with all the crap there is. You can never be smart enough, funny enough, pretty enough, brilliant enough, successful enough to be healed by any of that. This is what you have to do. Well, the million-dollar question is how do you do that? There's no the answer. Can I tell you some things that did occur for me? And this is going to be very inadequate. The first thing is to recognize what's happening. That's the first thing. Recognize that my being emotionally unrepaired is probably because I have some bail and Asherah and I'm, and I'm going to have to unpack my box. That's the first thing. The second thing for me in my life is I began to realize that, wait a second, I have to hang out with people wise enough to help me unpack my box. I deliberately, there's a guy named Gary Riker that called me this morning as I was driving here. Gary was my roommate back in college, and there was something about the wholeness of the emotions that Gary had and the way he dealt with them that were different than mine. And, and, and I, I, I studied Gary like a hawk. I, I, Gary, and I began to realize that Gary's friendship with me began to model something that helped me begin to unpack it. And I began to find a guy named Roger, and I began to find intergenerational friendships, and I began to change my community, and I began to change a community intentionally to try to find wise people who, who they didn't know either overtly how to unpack a box, but they did it better than I did, and, and that community began to do it. You have to recognize it. You have to intentionally pursue it in a community. I'm, I'll do a whole lot more of that in the morning. Number three, I learned to read the Scripture, and I learned to delight in the Scripture in such a way that the very act of reading Scripture was not looking for information in Scripture, but was a conversation with Jesus. And I learned to pick up a Bible and an ink pen and my journal and begin to go through the text and just read through, Christ, would you sit here and teach me the Scripture? Christ, would you help me unpack my box? I believe that the Scriptures are the only time you ever get to sit down and read a book with the author present who will teach you. And the Word of God will be active and the Holy Spirit will be active. And as I'm going through Luke 8 or Luke 9 or Luke 10, I'm journaling, God, why did I wake up angry this morning? And what does this text tell me? Why am I apathetic? Why did I get so my feelings hurt? And I began to let the, and the scripture began to be a living water that began to flow through me. And God himself began to make the transition. Here's another one. I began to realize without silence and solitude, I couldn't sort my values out. I couldn't even figure my emotions out, and I intentionally, but silence and solitude. I began to go for 35 and 45-minute walks every single day, and five or 10 minutes of it, I prayed out loud. And I would just process, God, you're present, you're active, God, you're here. Why am I responding that way? Why did I get that upset? Why do I respond this way? And I promise you, God himself, will give you revelation, help you unpack the box. There were a series of things. I don't want to oversimplify it, but I can tell you standing here as an old man, I'm exactly where you were at your age. And you can unpack the box. I told one of the group, well, no, both groups today. My big battle was whenever I made a failure. Shame. Embarrassment. Especially embarrassment. Do you know what? embarrassment I can actually laugh at now 
a preacher of one of the mega churches. That, I'm just telling you a story. Last week, when I was a kid, it would have torn me up. A preacher of one of the mega churches, I know him very well, pulled a prank on me last week. It was a pretty big prank. Scared the bejeebers out of me. And when he scared me, I honked at the horn at the guy who I thought was trying to run over me, and I laid on the horn, and then it turns out to be Mark Christian. When I was a kid, that would have embarrassed me because I didn't have street smarts. I missed the clue. I didn't realize that. Wow, 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 wow. And I have been laughing and telling that story, and Mark and I are laughing, and, and, but I couldn't have done that then. When it happened, I'm just not the same guy. Here's what I would say to all of you in this room. The greatest privilege you have is to take a journey with one another. All of you have a separate way of doing the journey, but here it is. You live in an activity-based culture that's even invaded the church, and it's time to be a relationship-based culture where we help each other unpack the boxes. And the very emotion that you're so frustrated with is actually a gift by God that has to be hung in the right place so it is tame and wonderful and terrific. And your story at the end of this journey will be that the God of peace sanctified you through and through and your whole spirit, soul, and body was found sound and blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. And the one who promised, he's faithful. He will do it. May God bless you. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.